Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen Podcast with me, Dr. Rupi, where we discuss the most important topics and concepts in the medicinal qualities of food and lifestyle. This is going to be the final podcast for 2019, and I realized I've had the pleasure of producing over 40 of these podcasts now. We have had some incredible guests talking about everything from mental health, behavior change, plants, the impact on inflammatory bowel disease, stress, diabetes, eating for your brain, eating for women's health. It has really, really been my privilege to deliver this by interviewing some of the world's best and most well-renowned speakers and researchers in their fields. And so what I thought I'd do is create a bit of a best of catalogue Um, for this final episode of 2019 to give you like an overview of the kind of stuff that we've talked about and and give you some pointers on how to eat generally healthy for yourself but also how to complement that with lifestyle measures. We're going to kick off uh, by speaking, well I'm not going to speak with them but I'm going to play you a couple of segments from some of the earliest podcasts back in 2017 when we started Uh, The first is with Alexandra Swacker, who's a public health researcher, used to work at the WHO uh, Collaboration Centre at Imperial College, my old university, and a common voice on the podcast, Dr. Anita Mitra, who is uh, the Gynae Geek uh, on Instagram and also author of The Gynae Geek, um, which you can find in all good bookstores and definitely, definitely recommend that. Um, Talking about eating whole and why uh, eating colourful is a good thing. Check it out. My first question really is, what does eating whole actually mean? I think we need to get this probably defined early before we actually start talking about being whole or eating whole. So what does eating whole actually mean? Mm, Absolutely. Well, that's a great question. Um, So eating whole uh, refers to foods that are as close to their natural form as possible and haven't undergone any chemical changes. So Mm -hmm. fruits, vegetables, whole grains, Mm -hmm. meats, if you eat it, Mm -hmm. um, dairy, again, if you eat it. Mm -hmm. So in comparison, some examples would be grilled chicken breasts as opposed to chicken nuggets. So chicken nuggets have obviously undergone extensive processing, contain additives, Uh whereas a chicken breast basically comes right off the chicken and you cook it. Gotcha. Okay. Mm. So it's kind of like a um, whole eating exists on a continuum or a spectrum, right? So it's super hard to have the most whole form as possible because I suppose by process of heating, steaming, cooking of any element or even chewing, something becomes processed. Right. Yeah. We're we're talking about as closer to the sort of whole. Yeah. And I think something important to note is when in doubt, Mm. look at the ingredients. And if there aren't any, that's a good sign. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So um, I know that uh, a lot of the time, people require something just really simple ideas of to how they can eat more whole and i know in clinic uh when i when i talk to them about the addition of oil and salt and sugar mm-hmm. to certain items that really they shouldn't really be there yeah, right. that's an indication that it's probably a little bit more processed right, right. on the spectrum of whole versus processed, yeah exactly right? yep so cool. the more you have to add things the more processed the food becomes gotcha and so What are the benefits of eating less processed and convenience foods? Right. Okay. So um, by eating 
whole foods, foods that are less processed, um, you are eating foods that have been perfected by nature and they are already in their integral and perfect form. They contain the perfect water to fiber ratio for optimum digestion and the correct chemical composition for the body to absorb all the nutrients that it needs. So um, I actually did a degree in medical biochemistry before I went to medical school. So I spent three years just being a pure science geek. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the last year, I worked in a research lab um, and it was a cancer chemo prevention research mm-hmm. lab. So what we did was we um, looked at the exact mechanism of how different chemicals that we find in foods um, are anti-inflammatory and anti-cancer agents. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also um, translated some of this research into clinical studies where we actually looked at how they can be used for patients undergoing cancer therapy at right, the time. Right. So mm. um, pretty interesting. So yeah, I spent mm. a couple of years actually working in that lab. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of um, how I also became interested in lifestyle medicine in general. Yeah. Um, because it's when I first started to really realize that what you eat really does matter. And it's not just about how many carbohydrates or you know, how many calories you're putting totally. in or whatever. Yeah. It's about the quality of what you're eating exactly. as well. And that's kind of how we bonded as well. This love of plant chemicals <laughs> and phytochemicals exactly, and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. That's how Rupi and I met via Instagram. <laughs> yeah. I think like Instagram's like the new Tinder for people who are interested in wellness. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah, I'm referred to as her Instagram boyfriend. Um, but uh, she, she does have a partner. It's not me. <laughs> yeah. Just to yeah, make no, sure. No yeah. rumors here. Yeah, no rumors. Anyway, <laughs> why don't we go? Oh, yeah, loads of people are scratching their heads again. What is a phytochemical exactly? Can we define that? Yeah. So um, as someone who's currently learning Greek, I'll uh, <laughs> yeah. tell you that phyto is the Greek word for plant. Right. Um, so it's basically a chemical or a nutrient that you get um, from a plant. Mm-hmm. And so there's loads of different kinds of, of phytonutrients or phytochemicals, um, which I don't think we'll go into too much detail. Yeah. But the different kinds depend basically on the on the chemical structure. Mm. And just that changing that chemical structure very, very subtly can have massive effects right? on like the, the quality of the color, the smell. Exactly. Um, that kind of stuff, right? Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. The reason that plants have um, phytonutrients is basically because they're part of the plant's immune system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... They are usually typically found in the skins. If, if, a, if a plant has a skin, mm-hmm. um, you'll find, generally speaking, the highest concentration there because they're just there to protect the plant and it's a great side effect um, for humans great. that they are really healthy for us. Great. Okay, so they're concentrating the skins. That's why we try and keep the skins as much as possible exactly. as long as you can tolerate them. Um, so what is the difference in uh, b- b- between micronutrients and phytochemical or phytonutrients as they're sometimes referred to as? So a phytochemical always has to come from a plant, mm-hmm. um, but micronutrients can come from animal-based products as well. Yeah. Um, and they just tend to have have slightly different properties. Yeah, and I I foresee a future where at the moment we we look at vitamins and minerals and we say, oh, you know, you need to have X amount as your recommended daily allowance. Mm-hmm. I think in the future we'll probably have a recommended daily allowance of phytochemicals. Yeah. I mean, right now we have five a day or ten a day, depending on which school of thinking you're coming from. But that's certainly something I foresee in the future with all these different phytos. Exactly. And I think really we don't know what the right concentrations um, mm. of phytonutrients are for exactly. humans at the yeah. moment. But yeah. I think that uh, the five or the ten a day rule is a really kind of handy surrogate marker. And it's just a way of saying like... Are you kind of grossly speaking mm. eating enough of these compounds? Because 
they are one of the predominant reasons why we should eat five or yeah. ten a day mm. um, to make sure that you're getting these compounds. Totally, yeah. So there's this concept of um, plant hormesis that I want to uh, introduce to the listeners. It's where cells or organisms are challenged by noxious chemical, and they, they are literally noxious chemicals that we find in plants um, that enable the cell to respond adaptively. So actually what we do is when we ingest these sorts of plant compounds, they elicit a response that's adaptive by our body and that reduces overall inflammation that leads to health benefits. It's quite difficult to get your head around that ingesting these sorts of plant chemicals are having initially a a stressing effect on the body, but that leads to health benefits. It's kind of, I I use the analogy of exercise. Mm -hmm. So exercise is essentially an inflammation producing and a stressing producing um, activity that we do. But we know overall it leads to health benefits, it improves our cardiovascular function. Yeah. It essentially conditions our body to deal with more stress going forward. So um, there are tons of different benefits of consuming these different plant chemicals. Well, first and foremost, we've always known that we should eat plants, um, fruits and vegetables because they contain antioxidants. Mm-hmm. Um, so antioxidants are useful because as part of the normal um, sort of metabolism of the body, you do make these things called free radicals. Mm. And you don't want to have lots of free radicals in your system because Mm. they contribute to aging. um, They can promote inflammation Mm. and they can also increase your risk of getting cancer, Mm -hmm. um, partly on their own, but also because chronic inflammation also is one of the major causes of cancers. I think you picked up something really important there that I just want to emphasize to the listeners. It's normal to have free radicals yeah. as a byproduct yeah. of normal metabolism. So the ways our cells respire is going to have a waste product at the end of it. And yeah. it's the excess of these waste products that we need to sort of balance, right? Yeah, exactly. I think free radicals have got this really bad name and it's they kind do. of like it's like <laughs> lactic acid in your muscles at the end of yeah. exercise. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's just, as you said, it's a waste product and we just need to get rid of it. Yeah. So by um, eating foods that contain antioxidants, then we can, we can help the body to get rid of these and reduce their effects. Mm-hmm as well as being antioxidants, there's lots of scientific data out there to show that these chemicals can actually act directly on pathways Mm. that are working in the body all the time. So there are lots of um, sort of inflammatory pathways that you can have, Mm. lots of pathways that cause the cell to divide and renew. Mm -hmm. So for tissue homeostasis, we call it, so maintaining your tissues. Mm -hmm. And then if certain pathways are affected in the wrong way, that can lead to development of a cancer mm-hmm. or a disease associated with excess inflammation, for example. Yeah. So these uh, compounds are really clever and able to actually act directly on these pathways yeah. to make sure that we don't have the wrong kind of tissue activity going That's on. That's incredible, isn't it? Remember, you can catch all the episodes, the full episodes, by just looking down the catalogue on the website, thedoctorskitchen.com, or on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Next, we're going to listen to Ben. We're going to hear from uh, what he has to say about eating largely plants and the differences between all these seemingly opposing diets. Check it out. So I thought we'd talk about like the huge similarity across multiple diets, including those as seemingly opposing as paleo and vegan and Atkins and Mediterranean and why they might have similar health benefits. What do you reckon? I mean, that is such a a great uh, question and observation at the same time. And, you know, one of the things you really notice in 
you know, anyone who's got an interest in nutrition is that there are diet wars. Yeah. You know, everyone <laughs> thinks they've got the best diet yeah. and they get a bit standoffish about it. Yeah. But actually it's, you know, there are similarities across these seemingly different diets that are responsible for the health benefits and they're actually quite generalizable. In fact, there was a fantastic study by Dr. David Katz at Yale mm-hmm. uh, University where they did exactly what you've just asked is they pulled together all the research on these different diets like Uh paleo diets, Mediterranean diet, vegan diet, vegetarian diet, low carb diet. (laughs) So many diets. (laughs) There's so many. Yeah. Yeah, And there's more than that. But what they did is they pulled all the, because there's a lot of studies on these now, they pulled all the data together and said, well, what are the things that explain the health benefits of these diets? And actually they came up with one shared commonality across all of them. Uh Mostly plants. Mostly plants, yeah. exactly, yeah. Yeah, so whether you're paleo or vegetarian, it's the plants. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think, like, that you're right, there's so much infighting between these different sorts of dietary dogmas. And a lot of the things, you know, apart from eating just more plants, is limiting things like refined sugar mm-hmm. and refined carbohydrates uh, and eating a variety of fruits and vegetables. If you just to do those two things alone, yeah. it can probably explain a lot of the successes of these apparently completely opposite diets. Yeah, 100% actually. And that's a, another finding that they came up with is that a, you know, a commonality across these also is you avoid rubbish, mm. you know. So, you, <laughs> you know, it's been said that there's no such thing as junk food. There's food and there's junk. And avoiding this highly processed, highly refined food that's associated very clearly with poor health mm. is one of the best things you can do. Yeah. You know? So we need to get away from naming ourselves based on the food that we eat and just talk about real food. I think like one of the, the first studies that I came across where I noticed that regardless of what diet you kind of uh, utilize, you're going to have very similar outcomes. And one of them is called the A to Z diet that you probably come across, the guy from Stanford, uh, Professor Gardner. And they found that after 12 months of, of these different diets, all the participants lost weight. Uh, some to a different degree, but all of them lost weight. So it really comes down to the individual. It's more about how you feel on that diet, what is more convenient for you as well. And, you know, weight isn't the best outcome to measure across like health benefits, but it's still, you know, one of the things that is quite easy to measure. And I just found that absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Okay, so we've established that diets that largely consist of plants are the healthiest. Are there any that you've come across that have specific protection against things like stroke and blood pressure and cancer and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, that's really pertinent because these illnesses you've just mentioned are some of the major causes of death and disability in society today. So understanding which diets offer the most protections are really important question. And there has been a lot of work done in this area, both uh, observational studies, which has mean, you know, they look at what people eat and associate risk with disease, or there's also clinical intervention studies where they get nutritionists and, you know, health professionals to counsel people in diet, follow them for years, see what happens. And one of the best studied dietary approaches in this particular area is what we call the traditional Mediterranean style diet, which doesn't actually exist. It's yeah. just a <laughs> it's just a model for healthy eating. Yeah. So it's like mostly plants, olive oil, mm. nuts and seeds, legumes, yeah. not too much red meat, that yeah. kind of stuff. But there are studies where they've used this for what we call both primary and secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease, right? And the effects are really striking. Like if you look at primary prevention study. So that's in people who haven't had a previous cardiovascular event. You're really looking at within about four years time of following this kind of diet, about a 30% reduction in risk of death 
from mm. cardiovascular mm. disease. That is enormous. Yeah, like yeah. You can't understate those figures. And then for secondary prevention, people at high risk, you're looking at upwards of around 70% risk reduction, yeah, which is just- That's incredible. Like, like this food stops people dying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And this is why I get so passionate about it because it's when you look at those sorts of numbers, it's not even like I need to qualify food as medicine. Food is medicine. Mm -hmm. And we could do a lot of good by actually heightening people's awareness of just how powerful our lifestyles can be. And listening to those stories and, and the anecdotes of patients as well as the large-scale studies is something that compounds my belief. But and that's absolutely fascinating, hey? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's such a great point is that food is medicine. We just need to get the message out. Ben definitely makes the case for eating largely plants and the fact that most diets are saying that very central thing. Make sure you check out his podcast, The Positive Health Podcast on iTunes. It is a very technical podcast where he interviews researchers from all over the world uh, about some quite in-depth subjects. It is fascinating please go check that out. Next, we're going to hear from our good friend, Dr. Megan Rossi, who has been on the podcast twice. She's got a fantastic book, Eat Yourself Healthy. Now it's out now. And we have a chat about what the microbiota is and why fiber is so essential to health. Gut health actually relates to the functioning of our entire digestive tract. So the tube that delivers food all the way from entry to exit. And it's really important that we remember that because things like our nutrient absorption is really important for our overall health and well-being. But of course, you're right. A lot of people are excited about the trillions of microorganisms living in our large intestine, known as a sciencey word, I like to call it, a gut microbiota. So the microbes that we know that are essentially so, so healthy for us, where do they actually come from? Where did we actually get covered in these microbes from? Well, Rupi, until recently, we actually thought that we were born sterile. So uh -huh. we, we thought that in our mum's tummy, we actually had no bacteria in us. Mm. And it was a vaginal birth mm -hmm. where we started, you know, to grow these bacteria. But we actually find out that um, we contain bacteria while we're living in our in our mum's tummy. Wounds, so yeah. we actually have some already to start with, gotcha. which come from our mum. Mm. But of course, very few and very low diversity. Most of our microbes come um, into us when we're um, birthed, so mm -hmm. we're inoculated by our mother's uh, vaginal and fecal microbiota mm -hmm. as well. So that's why there's quite a vast difference in our bacteria if you're born uh, vaginally or via C-section. Gotcha. But that's only for the first uh, couple of months. Yeah. We then, through breast milk, also increase the diversity of our gut bacteria mm. and then things like food. You know, there's actually quite a lot of different microorganisms in food, yeah. as well as the, the prebiotics in certain types of food, which feed mm. the bacteria and grow. Mm. And the most important one is really the environment. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if we grow out in the farm, we're playing with dirt, which is actually really important. Did you and grow up on a farm? I did. I did. <laughs> I, I certainly say. did. I was playing with yeah. some pretty gross things very yeah. on, early on in life, which I attribute now to my pretty good immune system, I uh -huh. think. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, letting the kids get a little bit dirty is actually mm. quite good for the diversity of their gut microbiota. But by the age of around three, we think our microbiota is quite stable. Mm -hmm. And what, you know, is really intriguing is that diet is the number one, you know, influencer of our gut microbiota. Yeah. So what we eat has a huge impact yeah, that's amazing. I mean, you, you mentioned the word microbiota. We also heard the, the term microbiome as well. Yeah. Um, what, what actually is the microbiota? 
Yeah, so the microbiota is the trillions of microorganisms, which includes not just bacteria, although mm. I know a lot of people refer to just the bacteria, but it's other things like parasites, viruses, and even fungi like yeast. And together, they're actually really beneficial. I know a lot of people freak out when yeah, they hear, yeah. oh, my God, a virus. <laughs> but together, they have this synergistic relationship as well as with human cells, and they work together really you know, to help us be yeah. healthy. That's quite a foreign. If we look after them, that if is. If we look after yeah, them, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's quite a foreign subject, isn't it, to think of these microbes, like you said, different types of bacteria, but also viruses, nematodes, et cetera, yeah. um, as helping us, as something that is beneficial for us. What kind of proportion are we talking about? How many, how, what percentage of uh, these microbes actually helping us versus the ones that are pathogenic or detrimental to our health? Yeah, so over 95% of the bacteria that we're aware of are actually really beneficial. That's um, incredible. Yeah, hey? and the yeah. ones living in us, I'd say 99%. Um, and it's not just necessarily about saying that a bacteria is bad or good. Mm. It's about the environment that it's in. And if it's growing too much, then mm. it could become bad. But if it's in a, you know, a smaller ratio, it's actually probably doing us some benefit. Yeah. So it's not so black and white to say that something's bad or good. Yeah. It's just, you know, in the right environment, um, yeah. which comes again back to what we feed it. Yeah, right? it totally. Yeah. And it's quite strange. Again, like during medical school, I learned a lot about different types of bacteria and how we need to kill them. But now I'm learning about, okay, these types of bacteria can actually serve a benefit to the human host if in the right quantities and they're actually in balance with other ones that's that's quite amazing yeah it is it is such amazing discovery and i think it was in the 19th century when they first thought you know bacteria were completely bad they mm. killed millions of people from you know infections such as anthrax and things like that and they're having vaccines so they're mm. really trying to kill all the bacteria mm. and then you know a couple of years after that actually ali ali mechnikov okay. ali mechnikov, ali mechnikov right. yeah, yeah, yeah um he's the founder i guess of the probiotic concept kind uh -huh. of started to identify that hey guys maybe some bacteria are actually good we shouldn't mm. be killing them all yeah and so from then on we started to have this thought that you know what these living organisms in us mm. we can actually you know utilize them and work with them so is it really since then that we've known a bit more about the microbiota like what's like a, a whistle-stop tour in the research and and when did it actually start accelerating yeah so i guess if you look all the way back when we first discovered bacteria. So that was in the 1700s and we found out that there are these microscopic things we can't see in the eye. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it was, the, you know, I think it was two centuries after that where pasteurization was, mm -hmm. you know, become um, a technique that they were using around killing all the bacteria. And that was around when the vaccines came out mm -hmm. and everything really trying to, you know, stamp out bacteria. Mm. And then the concept of probiotics came around fermented milk particularly, around yeah. that having some benefit. Mm. So that was all in the 19th century, or, you know, broad so call. Quite, the quite a long time yeah, quite we've a long known time. about this. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. But it's only been in the past 10 years or so mm. where we've really started to appreciate just the the size and the potential impact mm. that our gut microbes can really have on us. And that's mm. just because, you know, the technology has developed so that we can now identify the different bacteria living in us. Mm. Um, before that, we couldn't really grow them and we couldn't really identify, you know, what was going on where. Whereas now we've got the special sequencing techniques, mm -hmm. we can identify which bacteria. And what's even more exciting, and this is only more recently yeah. coming out, is their function. Right, okay. So it's no longer just about what bacteria you have living in you. Mm -hmm. It's about how they actually act. Gotcha, yeah. Because what we find is that two bacteria, they can be very different, but some of the functionality actually overlaps. Mm -hmm. 
And what's even more interesting, if you feed them different things, they can then also change their functionality. Humans <sighs> actually don't produce the enzymes needed to break down dietary fiber. Fascinating. So we can't actually, right. you know, digest it. It's yeah. the bacteria yeah. that are the ones that digest it. Yeah. And that's so important for producing really beneficial metabolites, yeah. which are compounds such as short-chain fatty acids, some of your listeners may have heard about. Mm-hmm. And they're shown to be very metabolically active and important mm-hmm. and even can, you know, talk to our brain, these metabolites. Gotcha. So that's yeah. kind of where we're starting to appreciate that these microbes, yeah, and their functionality is so broad. Yeah. Next, we have Dr. Michael Farker, who is a consultant pediatrician from the London Evelina Children's Hospital with a specialism in sleep medicine. And we discuss the mechanisms of what eating at different times can actually have on sleep function. And then straight after, we have Jenna Machocchi, who is a lecturer in immunology at the University of Sussex, a fascinating conversation that we had over two episodes about the impact of our gut and our immune system and actually what our immune system is. At this time of year, I'm constantly asked about what people can do to heighten their defenses against getting ill. So if you're interested, I think sleep and looking after your gut are two of the main things you can do to reduce the chances and improve the likelihood of you getting over the eventuality of having a common cold quicker. Check it out. So I'm a paediatrician. Uh, I've worked with kids for 17 years or so. And um, my interest in sleep started actually because I had a sleep difficulty when I was a teenager. So I oh, had right. something called sleep paralysis, which is this quite frightening experience that you sometimes get where you f- wake up and you are partly awake, partly asleep, but you feel like you can't move. And at the time, the doctor that I went to to tell about this didn't really know very much about it. And I went and researched it and it sparked an interest in sleep, which I've then kind of tracked all the way through my career wow. and ended up where I'm doing that just now. And so what are your current goals with sleep medicine right now? You, you, you're doing a lot of work around the subject, obviously, as part so of your clinical my, work. But. My day job is uh, I'm a consultant in paediatric sleep medicine. So we are there to support children with sleep difficulties, usually children who have either very complex or refractory sleep difficulties, mm. often in the context of other illnesses. So we look after lots of children who have conditions such as autism or ADHD, where sleep problems can be a very big part of the presentation and can really impact the family as a whole. Absolutely. Yeah. And we also have responsibility to those children who have the the more unusual. Um, so sleep diseases are relatively rare, but illnesses like narcolepsy, for example, are more common than I think many people realise mm. and can often be unrecognised. So we're there to help with the assessment and management of the complex, rare, refractory sleep difficulties. Mm-hmm. What we're not there for, unfortunately, is to help every family get their toddler uh, to magically sleep yeah. all the way through the night. <laughs> yeah. And one of the, the interesting things about sleep, while there are uh, broad principles that apply pretty much universally, everybody is very different. So there isn't a one size fits all necessarily for everybody. So thinking about your body clock, for example, um, most people know if they're a morning person or an evening person, Mm. a lark or an owl, and that is genetic. So whether you are ready to get up and go first thing in the morning, and then you're probably going to want to go to bed quite early in the evening, or you're somebody who functions at your best, you know, in the late hours of the night, but then you really don't want to get up in the morning, is genetic. So that's the genetic predisposition. That's all to do with how your body clock is set. And depending on how your body clock is set, then different strategies, if you have sleep problems, might be appropriate for you. So it's general principles are very valid, but there is a lot of individual variation that you need to think about when trying to help people with sleep difficulties. Absolutely. Yeah, that's fascinating. And what actually happens when we sleep? I know this is a million dollar question, but what what actually happens? So one of the, the fascinating things about sleep is that 
we haven't really been able to explore what goes on when we sleep in great detail uh-huh. until relatively recently. So the last 50 to 100 years or so, we've been able to start thinking about what happens when we sleep. When you sleep, what you are doing is you're reducing your awareness of the world around you. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of functions that go on when we sleep, which our body and brain depends on. Mm-hmm. So sleep is something that you spend. So over the course of your whole lifetime, you're going to spend about a third of your life asleep. Mm-hmm. From an evolutionary perspective, we don't tend to value things like that unless there is a benefit to them. So you're mm-hmm. spending a third of your life doing this. Mm-hmm. There must be lots of good reason why that's the case. Yeah, And we are constantly discovering new things things that sleep is implicated in. Yeah. You may have seen in the last week or so the Nobel Prize for Medicine and Physiology was uh-huh. awarded for uh, researchers who have done a lot of work in the body clock. Okay. Yeah. And one of the things that we're understanding is that the function of our body is quite tightly tied to our body clock. Mm-hmm. So our body clock tells us we should be awake in the daytime and asleep at nighttime. Mm-hmm. When we function against our body clock, our bodies don't work the way they should do mm-hmm. and that has consequences. Right, right. But sleep does lots of things. So it's important in children for uh, growth and development, both physical and mental. It's important for consolidating learning. It's Mm -hmm. important for emotional regulation. Uh, It's important for the function of every body system you've got. So if if you are mildly chronically sleep deprived, your immune system doesn't function as well as it Mm -hmm. would do. So you're more likely to get trivial colds. Anything that you can pick, I can probably find a way to tell you that sleep is important to yeah. it functioning as well as it should do. Absolutely, yeah. So given that we now establish sleep is very important, oh, yeah. how does eating positively or negatively impact your sleep? So sleep and Eating, appetite, hunger have quite a complex relationship and it's one that we're increasingly, uh, again, it's an area that we're we're rapidly uh, increasing our understanding of. On a very basic level, uh, sleep is something that depends on good routines and habits. So that body clock uh, that keeps you awake in the daytime, uh, asleep at nighttime. For most people, your body clock is not set 24 hours. So Mm -hmm. most people's body clocks run slightly longer, slightly shorter than 24 hours. So you're constantly resetting your body clock. Mm -hmm. And we do that through regular routine and cues. So the most important of those is light. Mm -hmm. So exposure to daytime light um, and as much good quality natural light as you can in the Mm -hmm. daytime. And then darkness at nighttime Mm -hmm. helps keep your body clock in tune. That's why you will see people like me harping on quite a lot about the, the negative impact of electronic devices at bedtime uh, on sleep quality because they really affect the timing of the body clock. That's something that's never been more appropriate to talk about, right? In oh, this absolutely. Era of yeah, yeah. So, and you know, media. so the iPhone is only ten years old, mm. um, so it's not really been around for very long. But now, if you say to people, "I'd like you to go without your iPhone for yeah. a day," they just go, "Oh, there's no way I can do that." We've become yeah. very; they become very integrated into yeah. our lives very quickly, mm. and that has. So, there's a lot of very positive benefits to them. They're brilliant, but particularly for sleep, they mm. are not good, and they are contributing to a significant increase in sleep problems and sleep quality. I think that we're seeing both in children and in adults. Mm -hmm. So light is the most important of those cues, but lots of other things help regulate it. And the more consistent your routine is, the stronger the reinforcement of your wake and sleep Mm. uh, rhythm, if you like. And eating is also a very, very powerful social cue. So Uh the more regular your routine is with eating, so mm-hmm. you know breakfast, lunch, dinner, consistent uh-huh. times, uh-huh. helps to reinforce wake. And then that also then helps to support the sleep side of things. The better your routine in the daytime, the better the sleep rhythm is reinforced. So one of the difficulties, for example, around about people who may not have as good 
eating routine. So if you're somebody who doesn't have regular meal times, you、mm-hmm. graze, particularly if you then snack and graze late into the evening, into、mm-hmm. the night, you lose some of that reinforcement of the natural wake sleep rhythm. The other way around, though, and again, this is something that we're again increasingly understanding, is that when we are sleep deprived. Um, and probably, being honest, most adults in this country are probably sleep deprived by、mm. about an hour per week on average,、mm. which doesn't sound very much. And most of us are, you know, take another coffee and cope. Yeah. But an adult should get about seven to eight hours of sleep per night. So、mm-hmm. if you are missing an hour of sleep every night,、uh-huh. you are missing an entire night's sleep over the course of a week, and that begins to have consequences. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that changes when you are sleep deprived is the hormones which help to regulate our appetite and hunger. So、right. uh, leptin and ghrelin.、Mm-hmm. They change when we are sleep deprived to make us more hungry, and they also tend to make us crave the foods that we know are less healthy for us. The ones that are going to give us immediate、uh, energy, immediate kind of food rush. You know, yeah, benefit. Totally. Yeah, yeah. So if you are sleep deprived, you are more likely to eat more, and you are more likely to eat unhealthily. Right. So sleep deprivation is probably a significant factor, which historically we've not been aware of, is contributing to the increasing problem that we're seeing with obesity.、Mm-hmm. So helping people to improve. Their sleep routines, their sleep habits, to to learn to prioritize sleep in their lives and why,、mm. might be one of the strategies that will help us deal with obesity、yeah. uh, as a problem which we are struggling to deal. Yeah. With. When we unlock a lot of the secrets of evolutionary biology, it will yield a lot more in our understanding of why we are the way we are, and then、yeah. how to self-manage that to to fit in with the modern environment because that's not changing. Yeah, you know, it's not going to go back to our rudimentary way of life anytime exactly, soon. Exactly.、Yeah. I love that. But, and,、um, and so. So you were based in Scotland, and then you came、yeah. all the way down. Yeah. <laughs> so for some reason, as a child, I had an obsession with health and disease. I was、okay. just really curious about. Maybe it was living on a farm. You see the circle of life. You know, when I was thinking about what to do when I left school,、um, I'd heard about immunology, and there was. A course at Glasgow University in the medical school where they just do immunology and it's very select, only twenty students. And I just thought, wow, this sounds really interesting. This sounds like this is the foundation of health and disease. And when I got there, I was like, amazing! I found、mm. my people. This is what I want to do. <laughs> and that was almost twenty years ago now. So I've just been in the field ever since, and I love it. And I think there's always more to learn. Your passion definitely comes through on、yeah. your blog,、yes. on your social social、um, posts, and、um, some of the articles that you've done as well. Yeah, for, for major. Magazines, but let's get into it. So, I think, and this is something we were talking about before、mm-hmm. the show, that the vernacular around immunology is very misunderstood、yes. and it's misguiding. I think、yeah. for a lot of people, because you'll you'll find lots of articles like, you know, these are the top herbs to boost your immune system yes, and、yeah. you know to to kill a cold and all this kind of stuff. So, I think we should strip it right back and、yeah. actually talk about what we mean by immunity. Yeah, definitely. I think that's really that's. Probably what got me, you know, talking about this、um, so much in the beginning, just hearing so much misinformation.、Mm. Um, and I think that the first thing to say that the immune system is this huge, complex web that's all over our body. It's found everywhere in the brain and all of your organs and your blood. And people like to think about it as being a single on-off switch. So you want to switch it on, fight infections, you know, create this force field that's going to keep you well, and then switch it off again. And it's actually more like a series of different switches, and you've got to have the right combinations. So it's a bit like a rheostat that you're constantly adjusting、yeah. to get it just right. But then something in your environment will change, the season changes, and then you have to kind of tweak it again. So it's not just an on-off switch. I think that's probably a hang-up from when people died from infection, and、mm. that's maybe going back. 
a hundred or so years ago mm. um, people might not make it to old age because they would die of infection that we don't see just now so yeah. we're constantly thinking and we'll switch on our immune system be invincible yeah. to infection but it doesn't quite work like that and um, it's important to say that immunity is what makes us unique so it's almost like your fingerprint even mm. in identical twins their immune systems will be different um, it's the way that the receptors are, are recombined. There's a really unique way that the genes um, work to make the, the, the sort of repertoire of what we call our immune cells and all the different things that they can sense, so viruses, bacteria. So every one of us is unique. And there's a kind of fundamental reason for that because, you know, if, if you think about a room full of people and you, you throw in a cold virus... Mm. If they were all to get sick to the same degree, we'd probably have died out as a species yeah. by now. So yeah. there's there's a, a fundamental reason why we're we're immunologically all different because you know some people might be more susceptible to bacteria, some of us might be more susceptible to certain viruses or parasites. But if we we're all the same, we wouldn't have survived. Mm. So there has to be that kind of um, uniqueness in our Im- immune system. I love that analogy actually because yeah. that does tease out a lot about how one thing might might work for some person yeah. that could be diet it could be medications it could be yes, any sorts yeah. of things um, and it might not do anything for the other yeah. person and that uniqueness is something that I'm trying to bring out of people as well with the yeah. content I put out it's, it's about becoming the expert of not of health of not of nutrition but your own health yes and yeah. how that relates to you so there's so much information out there, so much content but really it's about filtering out that content and, and deciding how does that help me in this yes, situation yes exactly and I think that's another brings out another important aspect of the immune system is that it's always changing. Mm. It's not something that we're born with. I like to think of the immune system as something that's made. So you're born with a quite rudimentary immune system and you're reliant on a lot of what you've got from your mother, um, both through the placenta and then if you're breastfed. Um, and then your immune system really starts to develop from the moment that you're born. And it continues to develop and change throughout your lifetime into old age so when people say oh I've got a really rubbish immune system <laughs> maybe at that moment in time because you've got a cold and you're feeling lousy yeah. but you know it, it's not a fixed thing there's things you can do to change it and we know that only a fraction of what determines your immune system is in the genes mm-hmm. a lot of it is the environment what you're doing so things that you can actually um, be in charge of and yeah. manage by yourself so nutrition being only one of those but um, all sorts of lifestyle factors definitely yeah, and we're definitely going to get into that so your immune system essentially this complex uh, set of cells mm. I think a lot of people don't realize that anything that really protects you and uh, yes. helps your your innate sort of homeostatic mechanisms yes. your your balancing mechanisms yeah. is part of your immunity yes so that exactly. could be the acid in your stomach it could yeah. be your yeah. nasal hairs or yeah, your nostril exactly. your the mouth and secretions on your skin exactly. so it's it's cells it's molecules it's it's those barriers to infection if you think about where you're normally going to get an infection it's it's breathing things in or swallowing things or through the skin it's the the bits that are exposed and it's not just for infection. I think this is, again, something that people don't think about. Um, it's also the main thing that's involved in repair and adaptation. So if you're going in and working out in the gym, your immune system's helping your muscles adapt, repair and strengthen. It's involved in pregnancy and the success of, of carrying a child. Uh, it's, it's really a key part of the ageing process. Mm-hmm. It can really 
determine how well we age mm. and it's actually the main cancer surveillance that mm. we have in our body and I think that's again something that not many people think about. Yeah I, I like to I use the analogy in, in the next book E to be illness about how your immune system instead of being an aggressive military force yes it's yeah. like a peacekeeper yeah it's sort of like looking at where there needs to be a little bit more action yeah. a little bit more force and actually where we need to step back a bit yes because yeah. an immune system that is overactive that is boosted if boosted, you like yes. it's not a good thing <laughs> no exactly <laughs> and that's where we lead to people who are suffering with autoimmune issues yeah. where your immune system essentially loses the capability to yeah. recognize friend from foe yeah exactly i think that's really important the immune system doesn't just recognize different pathogens as we call them so the bugs that are causing infection but they recognize danger and damage the immune cells are intimately entwined with all our other systems in the body so they have um, receptors for uh, your sex hormones like estrogen progesterone so they're affected by different um, fluctuations in those also they have receptors for stress hormones like cortisol and the neurotransmitters so if you think about the complete picture then how you're feeling your stress um, you know the the different hormones hormone times that um, maybe are going on, for example, in a woman's body, mm-hmm. this is all affecting your immune system as well. So it's 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 like the sixth sense, you know, it's really helping us uh, manage our environment yeah. and, and adapt to that. It's really I, I think that's a really good analogy, actually, being the, the sixth sense. The sixth sense, that's how yeah. I like to think about and it. And already, yeah. just from that description of just how complicated and intricate the system mm-hmm. is, you can understand why just taking a single supplement yes. is unlikely yeah. to be the silver bullet that magically improves your immune system <laughs> yeah. to fight off a cold or whatever you're going through at that point yeah. in time. So I think that's like already you know, yeah. a, a good understanding of, of why these things don't necessarily exactly. work. When I, when I start teaching immunology uh, down at the University of Sussex, the first time that the students get any kind of insight, I show them this huge web of all the the cell populations and the subpopulations and then like the subpopulations yeah. and you can just see you know the emoji of like the mind blowing um, they're like what it's it, there's so many different things going on and so many switches um, yeah. that anything to do with the immune system is going to be multifaceted so there's going to be a lot of different things going in to give you a certain result so that's the reason that there's not going to be one single supplement yeah. or thing that you can do that's going to give you some kind of immune effect it's always going to be multi-pronged in your approach that description of all those different sort of immunological <laughs> factors brought back loads of painful <laughs> memories for me actually in yeah. medical school trying to figure out oh god like all these yeah. different like t-regulatory cells and mhc yeah. complexes every like, year they discover on? a new subset of yeah. a subset yeah. <laughs> and then there's like the compliment system which is like I actually had some there. people message me on Instagram and social media just saying can she just describe exactly what a compliment is <laughs> what is MHC what are all these different sort of neurological yeah. factors you know it's quite funny actually there's a lot of medical students I think that follow me and they're just trying to get like yeah. uh, some answers for their it's, essays I always think I'm, I've got to work really hard not to scare people off immunology in the beginning because it does get really interesting later on yeah yeah <laughs> so now we kind of understand what the immune system and you're suffering from cold at the I know moment, right? ironically yeah. somebody said to me the other day like I didn't think you would get sick <laughs> <laughs> you're always talking about the immune system surely yeah. you should be invincible and this but. is something I talk to patients about it's like the mm-hmm. very fact that you're sick um, and you have a temperature yeah. and you uh, you know you have all these other sorts. you have a cough you yeah. have a tickle you have a, a throat yeah. sensation shows you that your immune system is actually working yeah exactly and it's about changing your perspective from yeah. uh, one that is annoyed by the fact that you have a cold yeah. which is I, I get it it's super annoying but yeah. 
you should also be grateful and appreciative of the fact that your immune system is working. Yeah, exactly. And not everyone has an intact immune system yeah. that can tolerate that. And exactly. You're most likely going to be fine in a couple of days. Yeah, that's the thing. Colds and flus are self-limiting. There's so many different varieties, which is why it's normal to get a few every year. And most of the time, you don't even realize your immune system's working. I mean, we live in this really microbial world and every day mm. it's just like fending things off. We don't even notice it. And every now and again, one might slip through the net and then you get sick. And the symptoms are actually your immune system more than the actual infection in most cases mm. so they might be unpleasant but you just got to ride them out yeah. and this is again <laughs> where I think like modern life is hard because you know the general message is like go down the pharmacy buy all the over the counter medications and then get to work and struggle through the day yeah. and um, if you actually maybe just took a day off or two and rested, you probably yeah. get over it a lot quicker. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Our producers actually were talking about uh, some cold and flu <laughs> over the counter uh, medications. I was like, oh, do you, what do you recommend about this yeah. one? I don't, can't remember what it was. It was some spray for the yeah. back of your throat. It's really funny. Even though I tell this to my husband all the time, he loves himself one of those, like, you know, that you put the hot water in and it's like a paracetamol based, <laughs> like decongestant <laughs> thing. I'm like, that tastes disgusting. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Save your money and. <laughs> yeah, we'll Just talk rest. about that actually. With yes, the, the, exactly. Uh, the fever sort of um, yeah. balancing uh, medications and stuff but yeah. Now we know how complicated the system is and it's basically everywhere. Are there yeah. particular sites where the immune uh, system will dominate? Yes. Well, I think the one that you can't escape is, is the gut. Um, and I, this it wasn't long until we're going to start talking yes, about the gut. Yes, exactly. You, you can't not, not them talk about the gut when yeah. you talk about the immune system. They are completely dependent on each other. Um, and it's that dinner party fact of like, oh, did you know most of your immune system's in the gut? Well, it's true. And um, there's good reason for that. I think with a lot of things in biology the the form follows the function so the, the the structure of the digestive tract the whole architecture it's optimized for digestion to get the most out of your food that creates a vulnerability because it's actually the lining of your digestive tract is only one cell thick so to me that's like quite fragile mm. you know there's there's all sorts of things going into your mouth every day mm. there's just the general bacteria and and bugs that are in our environment that we're swallowing um, there's things that could be in our food that could make us sick and just the food itself how does the immune system know not to respond to that so mm. because of that there's maybe about 70 to 80 percent of your immune cells that line the, the digestive tract and they form all these kind of unique structures that have unique ways to keep a surveillance on what's going on so that's really quite important yeah absolutely i think that that sort of um uh, the the very fact that the architecture is only one cell thick yeah. shows you why it's so important to have yeah. immune cells there. Exactly. Because we're in constant com communication with our environment yeah. via our 30 centimetre long yeah. um, uh, digestive sac, or the, the first part of it anyway. Um, and and that's why, you know, it's it's, it's just a natural evolution yes. as to why we have yeah, immune cells exactly. in those areas. Yeah, and, and, you know, I think it's such a portal for um, infection, you know, that we have to have those defences there. Mm. It's interesting then to talk about the microbiome of the gut. This is getting a lot of airtime. People are getting more aware of the microbiome. And what we do know that if you do not have a microbiome, then your immune system does not develop. It's, mm. it's completely uh, reliant on the colonization after birth of our microbiome to develop fully. So I think that's what, another reason why we should take care of our gut microbiome. Mm, yeah, it's um, one of those reasons why we're seeing with 
uh, C-sections and yes. versus natural delivery. Yes. Those babies who have C-sections are more at risk yes. of having ATP, so allergic reactions yep. and issues yeah. like asthma and eczema and stuff like that. Definitely. Not to say that that's a definite. Uh, no. You know, it's definite case study. That you you're definitely going to get asthma, yeah. but uh, you're certainly more at risk because of the um, issues with poor yeah. microbial development in the yeah uh, infant exactly. Tract. And um, there's a lot of work trying to unpick those mechanisms because I think that's going to be really important to understand. Mm. That leads quite nicely on to the point that much of your immunity is actually set up in childhood. So many people who might be thinking, oh, I've got a terrible immune system. Perhaps there are elements of what happened in those very early years mm. that have had downstream consequences. And I think it's always helpful to think about what you can effect and you know instead of focusing on oh I was a c-section baby or yeah. I wasn't breastfed or yeah. uh, these things it's you know you can't change those so it's mm. better to think about what we can change exactly it's a, I have a lot of patients actually in general practice who uh, over the last 20 years of their life uh, young patients 20 or 30 mm. years they had recurrent illnesses as kids yeah. and you can almost map a pattern with antibiotic use and c-section and, and not yeah. breathed and all the other factors beyond yeah. just uh, nutrition and, and medications yeah. that may have led to them having issues with their guts or yes. issues with eczema dry skin and a, a whole spectrum of different uh, diseases yes. because of uh, a poor microbial environment that isn't to say that they are they're sentenced to that for no. life but there are certainly things that we'll yeah. end up talking about about how we can actually encourage exactly. microbial development and yeah you might just have a different set point because of those early events that happen because you're you're more or less sterile when you're born mm. um, and then you're subsequently colonized as soon as you enter into this microbial world and it's it, it's useful to think of it as you know the microbes were there before us so we've evolved with them we mm. have to find a way to sort of have a, a mutual relationship so mm. they actually do quite a lot for us in the gut um, they themselves are part of our immune defense so we, we talk about the microbial barrier yeah. because they outcompete with any bad bacteria that could be coming in through the mouth and not giving them any space um, and they also make sure that those that delicate barrier of our, our gut is really strong and really tight um, and this is an area of where I used to actually do a lot of research on when I was in Switzerland is this whole idea of leaky gut, which I think yeah, is one of those kind yeah. of woo-woo terms. It is, yeah. yeah. But it's, 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 it's weird because if you type in leaky gut yes. into like PubMed, you'll, you won't get much. No. But if you type in intestinal hyperpermeability, yeah. that's when you get, oh, okay, there is actually a lot yes. of science behind yeah. this. Yeah. Exactly. The, the science has sort of always been there. And I guess the leaky gut term kind of existed in a parallel woo-woo world. And yeah. now the two are kind of converging. And, um, yeah. Yeah, so the, you've actually done some research in this? Yeah, so that was uh, a lot of the work when I, I worked out in Switzerland, mm -hmm. um, trying to understand. So I actually worked for a pharmaceutical company. I wasn't making drugs, but they employed me to try and understand what was going on in a normal situation in the gut in terms of the immune system to try and figure out, okay, what happens when that's perturbed and then can we intervene with something? So they mm -hmm. were kind of hoping that I would give them some drug targets. Yeah. But I was just like, oh, this is amazing. I can unpick the science, what's going on. And sometimes you have to know what's happening in a normal situation to know how that goes wrong. And in a normal situation, those tight junctions that yeah. exist between these uh, this one cell thick yeah, uh, lining, they, they increase and they decrease, right? And they yes. become more leaky and they become less yeah. leaky. But I that's mean, normal. That's normal. I think that's mm. a really important thing to point out because people can get very confused if they start mm. doctor googling leaky gut yeah. but it is a normal physiological phenomenon there's actually 
certain um, components of our diet that can exacerbate that leakiness. Mm -hmm. um, the two really well-known ones are, are fat, and particularly saturated fat, and the fructose from mm -hmm. fruit sugars. Mm -hmm. But that's not to say that we should avoid those things because there's actually a lot of evidence that if you're consuming fat or saturated fat or fructose with fibre mm -hmm. and with phytonutrients, that is actually fueling the bacteria in your gut, your microbiome, to produce particular things, short-chain fatty acids being one of those, that help seal up the gut again. Mm -hmm. So it's actually quite useful to open the gut when you're digesting food to facilitate the whole uh, digestion and getting the nutrients into the body. And then the fibre helps to shut it back, back up again. So would you say it's less about having a leaky gut or yeah. having a, a, a permeability of your gut and more about the timing of how long you expose yes. those tight junctions to be open essentially uh, versus closed. Yes, I think that's the picture that's starting to emerge and that I think ties in quite nicely to dietary patterns um, rather than focusing on specific nutrients. Mm. So... Um, how many times a day we're opening up the gut and one of the reasons that opening the gut up is is detrimental for the body is because the the microbiome that lives inside our gut can slip through those holes mm. into the bloodstream and all around the body and while those are considered our good bacteria because they live in the gut and they do a lot of good things for us when they get in the wrong place they're just the same as any other bad bacteria mm. they have the same molecular patterns on them that send an alarm signal to the immune system they switch on inflammation um, and this can all be happening at a sort of low level that you wouldn't perhaps even be aware of there mm. is sort of no firm signs and symptoms of yeah. this going on but I think cumulatively over a long period of time yeah. then it could be that we start to see some some damage going yeah. on and, and things springing up it's, so, it's, I think it's quite important for, for the listeners to understand that um, your immune system is very much related to the inflammation response Yes, and it's uh, essentially mediated by the immune system so when you need to have uh, a response to uh, a bacterial infection a virus or, or even yes. normal colonisation of, of your gut yeah. um, it will elicit this inflammatory response yeah. and a I suppose it goes back to this timing. It's like, okay, you can have a little bit of inflammation when you eat because that is very normal. Yes, yeah. But when, you, when you're eating for long periods of time, so actually when you're grazing or when yeah. you're having the wrong sorts of foods and it's this constant sort of yeah. um, exposure, that's when you have this low-grade inflammation. Yes, exactly. To meta-inflammation in yeah. the literature that um, can lead to uh, ill health outcomes. Yes, And yes. I think inflammation is just another topic that yes, we probably need to spend another podcast yeah. talking about. I mean, I think the one key thing maybe to talk about with regard to inflammation is that it's, it's acute by design. So it's only ever supposed to be a short-term thing. Mm -hmm. And then if it's happening all the time, it starts to take its toll on the body. Mm. And we, we call it chronic, so it's more of a long-term thing. But um, yeah, the, the leaky gut thing, I think people shouldn't be concerned about uh it's normal but i think that you there's things you can do to prevent leaky gut and fiber and phytonutrients are two of the proven ways that we know help tighten it up again sticking with the subject of the gut we have dr alan desmond a gastroenterologist talking about the subject of IBD, but also I think this is uh, important for everyone, particularly when it comes to the presence of processed foods in our food system that we really need to have a look at uh, and reform. Check it out.
the next characteristic of the modern diet that we've alluded to already is the intake of ultra-processed foods. So we eat an awful lot of ultra-processed foods in this country and in the United States and in Australia. And I'm picking those three countries out because those are the countries with pretty high prevalences of inflammatory bowel disease. So when we eat ultra-processed foods, we're taking in things that aren't actually food. Just to define ultra-processed food, that's one where it's been modulated very, very Mm. far from its original whole foam state and likely had a number of different additives added to it in the form of stabilisers, sugars, salt uh, and uh, refined uh, industrialised oils. Yeah, exactly. So you're talking about food that can sit on the shelf Uh, You're talking about a cake that can sit on the shelf for two weeks and then you buy it and you open it and it's moist and soft. So it's not moist and soft because it's been baked lovingly. It's 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 moist and soft. It's full of emulsifiers and sweeteners and preservatives. I'm just having a flashback of all the cakes I've eaten on NHS wards. Yeah, that a very yeah, loving maybe. patient or a nurse has brought in because we're on nights or whatever. Well, often those are home baking, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. well, often that's home baking. So I think you're okay. They're they're very unlikely to be adding polysorbate eighty <laughs> or carboxymethylcellulose or yeah. maltodextrin yeah. in their home kitchen. I know the ones that I get from uh, supermarkets that I can't name. Um, <laughs> uh, probably not those, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but so if we look at those things, what effect do those things have on our gut microbiome and our gut health? There's some very technical papers showing under electron microscopy that if you take a section of gut from a person who's got Crohn's disease and you expose it to dietary concentrations of emulsifiers like polysorbate 80, you can accelerate aspects of the disease process, particularly the adherence and invasion of certain bacteria that can provoke the inflammatory process. And there's similarly papers showing that if you do the same experiment and you take an artificial sweetener like maltodextrin, which is in almost everything, um, you do the same thing. You magnify the disease process. So not only do processed foods that have 9 to 15 to 20 ingredients on the back, most of which you don't really know what they are, not only do those foods predisposed to developing inflammatory bowel disease, but they probably also aggravate the disease process in patients who have inflammatory bowel disease. In fact, the, the, the evidence for emulsifiers, which you'll find in lots of foods, uh, soft whip ice cream, cottage cheese, even purportedly healthy foods, like yeah. a lot of our plant-based milks, will have emulsifiers added to make them feel creamy in the mouth. So the the evidence showing the deleterious effect these have in terms of inflammatory bowel disease um, is so well documented that a few years ago, a team of researchers wrote a paper to the Journal of Crohn's and Colitis saying, we've cracked it, guys. Emulsifiers are causing Crohn's disease. You know, And in a way, they were right. But I think it's emulsifiers within the whole picture of how we now eat. So and I think it's important to note that um, scientists have a habit of doing that. I think in papers mm. that I've read, they're just like, "We've d- that's it. We've done yeah, it. We've, we've, we've it. found it. We just need to remove that and that's it. And like we alluded to at the start, you know, this is a polygenic disease. It's increasingly complex pathology behind what's driving it and what may work for some patients mm. may not work for others either. No, you're right. And it's never one thing and there isn't ever one um, single solution to gastrointestinal problems, whatever the cause. It's usually 
multifactorial input that is causing the problems and symptoms. Um, but I think certainly these guiding principles can be really useful. So we, we've talked about fiber, we've talked about emulsifiers, and I guess I the, just wanted to do one more yeah, thing yeah, yeah, on the emulsifiers. I had a patient who came in, I think, and they'd been trying a, a vegetarian vegan diet for about 30 days or so, and they didn't have inflammatory bowel disease, but they felt uh, uh, some definitely some gut symptoms mm. and uh, definitely felt worse than themselves. And I remember just asking them what they were eating, and it was a lot of healthy junk food, like I like mm. to say. It's the ultra-processed foods that have plenty of additives in but are marketed as very healthy. Mm. And this is an issue that I see in a lot of uh, wellness festivals that I go to, actually, um, a, a lot of uh, branding in the supermarkets as well. And I think a lot more people need to be aware of just because something is in a nice recyclable mm. brand packet, uh, brown packet, it doesn't ultimately mean it's going to be healthy for you. You're absolutely right. I think the my experience with my patients with inflammatory bowel disease has led me to become a very strong advocate for a whole food plant-based diet. And the emphasis there is on whole food. Um, and you're quite right. You can say, well, I'm going to go I'm going to go vegan. I'm going to go plant-based because I've heard it's really healthy. But I think, you know, there are certain benefits to eliminating meat and dairy from your diet beyond what you get from other whole food, plant-based foods. But a huge part of the healthful impact is, in fact, that you're eating whole foods. Um, I mean, on your, uh, you know, all the food that you prepare and that you share online, etc., shows that in a, in a great way. So that's all healthy whole food knocked together in a few minutes probably really cheap and probably tastes really delicious. Oh, well, one day I'll definitely cook for you. Yeah. <laughs> you can find out for yourself. <laughs> now I've got that recording, I'm just going to keep it Yeah, that. yeah, that's the whole podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Finally, I think this particular time of year when it's cold, you're less inclined to go out and exercise. I want to remind ourselves about the impact of exercise and not it generally being going to the gym but actually how active we are during the day and what kind of things that they can do to improve our health and our well-being i had a great chat with dr john sykes who's a gp currently in australia right now who has done some fascinating work at medical schools heightening the education to be full of evidence-based suggestions for medical students and how we can incorporate this into clinical consultations and what the evidence base says about if we move more how we can improve the uh, livelihoods of, of everyone and finally how to get motivated to do it i had a, a great conversation with joe wicks the body coach about motivation we talked about burnout we talked about gratitude i think that's a really nice way to sum up um, this best of podcast go check it out you've seen obviously a lot of evidence but a lot of uh, your own anecdotal experiences with patients right mm. with the improving the outcomes yeah big time and I think the, the biggest area where I see that is in mental health. Um, now, that's interesting because a lot of people don't associate kind of being active with mental health. And when I say mental health in this situation, I'm talking about depression and anxiety, mm. which is something that I see a huge amount of in the NHS. And it's something that I'm, again, quite passionate about because it, I just find it so sad seeing so many people who are feeling so low, feeling so anxious about their day-to-day -day stuff, mm. um, and they don't have an outlet. Mm. And... The patients who I see who I try to, in a, obviously a very sensitive way, talk about the idea of becoming more active, even if it's something small, going for a walk, getting a bit more daylight in, involved as well, trying to do a bit more activity. 
I've, I've found some actually who will just go nuts for it, mm. who will go from being very low, tell me that they're not that keen on a tablet, which I'm, I'm more than happy to, to go down that line, mm. um, and then say actually they just want to do a bit more activity. And those are the ones, if I'm honest, that often come back and say, you know what, I feel so much better really? having been more active and incorporating that into my lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and it's great to see. And, and I can almost tell sometimes when I see patients in there, kind of using motivational interviewing techniques their confidence and their motivation to exercise when they have got a low mood how well they're going to do and often those who've got a good motivation to be more active will do pretty well mm. um, and we're seeing loads of evidence for this you know across the board and, and the thing for me is that it doesn't just affect mental health you know the benefits for so many different conditions are massive yeah just to throw out a few kind of stats because i love a few stats <laughs> yeah but you know we reduce our risk of diabetes by 50 percent if we are hitting the guidelines for activity we reduce our risk of heart disease by about 35 percent osteoarthritis by 60 to 85 percent depression and anxiety by 30% and then even the cancers like colorectal cancer we reduce our risk by 50% yeah. 20% reduce risk in breast cancer and then if we're thinking about other conditions like dementia we reduce our risk of 30% yeah and then it's a huge 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 numbers because well. when we're, just to give you a little bit of context when we read journals uh, and papers on pharmaceutical interventions which are sometimes absolutely fantastic and they're very very necessary in our daily work they're nowhere near the numbers. Those are like yeah. block, block, bluster drugs. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're talking about the numbers. So, and this, there's a quote that you always like to use. Yeah, so one. Robert Butler has a great quote, which is, if exercise could be packed into a pill, it would be the single most widely prescribed and beneficial medicine in the nation. Mm. And I really do believe that's true. And I've heard lots of different variations of that quote. Mm. But I really do think it is true. If we could package up exercise or physical activity into a, a pill, not only would we give it to every patient, every patient would want to take it because they'd see those benefits. Yeah, And you mentioned like uh, the general guidelines and how that has the impact of, on 30% reduction of dementia yeah, and 50% yeah. on, on um, colorectal cancer. W what are the general guidelines and, and how do we actually, how do we interpret those? Yeah, so essentially the guidelines are to do 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity a week as well as two muscle strengthening activities a week as well. And that's for 18 to, you know, above 65 year olds um so essentially the moderate intensity activity is variable for different people i often say the best way of testing it is the uh the talk test so when you are doing moderate intensity activity you could you're a bit sweaty you're a bit hot under the collar you maybe feel your heart racing a little bit faster and you're able to talk to the person next to you doing that activity but you can't sing so you can talk but can't sing uh -huh. and then when you're talking about vigorous activity which is actually, if you did vigorous activity during the week, you can do half the amount. Mm. But then, in that situation, you're not able to talk to the person next to you. Yeah. You're so out of breath, you have to take a pause in between. Mm -hmm. So that's a good test. I must say, it hasn't always worked yeah. for when <laughs> yeah. I've tried it myself. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it's a rough way of working out those levels. Okay. Um, and moderate you know, intensity activity can be anything from running, cycling, walking at a fast pace. I think that's something that we really underestimate as a, a form of activity. Mm. And then muscle strengthening can be anything again. You know, we don't have to be going to the gym to lift heavy weights and all that kind of stuff. Actually, just body weight exercises, you know, just doing something fun, even games of tag, running around, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And that will have benefit um, to our body. Yeah, and I, I like the talk test. The reason why is because it doesn't really put uh, a specific number on 
uh, what a specific activity it isn't assigned to a specific activity because I know a lot of patients would get completely out of breath by going at half the speed that I'd be able to do on a treadmill for example or even just brisk walking down their road um, and that talk test just gives an idea of their cardiorespiratory fitness and how it's a lot more personalized to them yeah definitely and patients can kind of associate with that a little bit better because I think the word moderate is so so broad so broad Um, and I think what I often say is I don't even often use that language I just say as long as you just feel like you're you know you're putting in the work you're feeling a little bit like it's a little bit hard Mm. then that is moderate activity if you're feeling like it's really hard and you'll know when it's really hard Mm. then that's vigorous and We've talked about the benefits for so many conditions. I think it's worth bearing in mind that for some patients with heart failure, for COPD, walking 100 yards is going to be really hard. That's super difficult. Really hard. And that would be classified as vigorous for them. Yeah. COPD is a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And that's something that we see with, uh, tends to be smokers when they have a restrictive lung disease. And and heart failure is where you you have an inefficiently pumping heart. Um, So these patients, there's different classifications of the the degree of severity. But generally, they have very poor exercise tolerance. They can't, in some cases, walk more than a few yards, let alone 100 yards. Yeah, can be really tricky. And telling them to exercise can be a really hard hard thing to do and traditionally actually we've been telling patients to rest right after cardiac yeah. uh, uh, myocardial infarction so you have a heart attack um, it was it was standard practice to tell yeah. them to rest for bed rest three used weeks. to be part of the management plan yeah and now it's the opposite the exact opposite yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so the risks of uh, of not doing exercise, which a lot of us, I mean, I, I feel like we should be standing whilst we're doing this yeah, podcast. Yeah, I was thinking that. My producer's probably going to have a go at us. <laughs> we're going to mess up the, the sound or something. So we won't stand, but the intention was there. To yeah, stand. yeah, we tried. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the risks of being sedentary are pretty scary, right? Yeah, they're massive. Um, and I think it's amazing looking at the stats for sedentary behaviour and how sedentary we are as a nation. Now, I think it's really important here to clarify what we mean by sedentary. So if I was working an office job and I worked eight till till five o'clock and then I did an hour of gym in the evening, then you could probably say that I was active for that day because I've done my activity for the day. But if I'm sat down for that whole period in the morning and in the afternoon then I'm actually sedentary for a long period of that day. And although I'm active during that day, I am sedentary. And the problem is with being sedentary is we know that confers risks in itself. Mm. There are also some scary stats around the UK and how sedentary we are. So we know around 78 days of the year we are spent sitting. About 64 days a year we're watching TV. Um, And they just really make you realise how much sitting we do. (laughs) It's nuts. And when you see the risk and... You know, when you look at the studies, I suppose the thing that scares me is you're looking at the kind of markers that we look for in disease. Mm -hmm. So high cholesterol levels, high triglyceride, which is another type of fat in the blood that we worry about. Um, Lower levels of HDL, which is the good level of fat. Mm -hmm. So those things are all detrimentally associated with sitting more, Mm -hmm. you know, across the board. And then when we look at kind of... um, other studies which look specifically at heart disease and death rates, we know there's an 84% increased risk of dying if you spend from heart problems, mm. if you spend greater than 10 hours in a car during a week compared to less than four hours, Wow, which is massive. Yeah. And then when we look at kind of overall sedentary behavior, if you spend greater than 23 hours of your week being sedentary, you have a 64% increased risk of dying from a heart problem compared to if someone... Um, had sedentary behaviour of less than 10 hours a week. Yeah, yeah. You know, again, massive numbers 
mm. massive increased risk from being sedentary. It really makes you worried about us sitting does, down right yeah, now. Yeah, it does yeah. actually. Yeah, they're quite scary. I think like one of the things I, I started doing a couple of months ago is just monitoring my activity levels using a tracking uh, device. Mm. And I actually realize I, I, I regard myself as someone who's quite active, keeps in shape. Um, but for someone, if, if, if I was the kind of person that wouldn't, force myself to do some exercise and I enjoy exercise actually so it's not really a, a, an activity I have to force myself to do but had I not been doing that I'm looking at my activity levels they're very 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 inactive during the day if I'm uh, at home working from home if I'm in A&E or working in general practice I do the same thing as you I always yeah. get up and I go and yeah. get the person from the, um, uh, the waiting room but um, a lot of people just don't have that opportunity um, and that's why I think there's quite a few hacks that you can you can do to improve your activity levels right yeah you sound like you've got some yourself. I do, Edgar, yeah. Go for I it. Do, you yeah. go first. You go first. <laughs> standing desks. Yeah. I mean, I'm a really big fan of standing desks. It's actually helping my posture. Yeah. Um, it, it gets me active. It gets me walking around. Yeah. Uh, it means that I'm not just... It actually helps me think, I find. When I was writing the second book, Eat to Be Illness, I got a standing desk. It was something uh, I just put on my regular table. Um, I think it's about 20 quid or something from... Uh, Amazon yeah. <laughs> but I'm sure there's other places you can get it and um, I just put that up there and I, I just I felt a lot more active and yeah. I could certainly tell looking at my tracking device it actually helps I got I actually got the same desk after you? seeing yours nice. yeah, and I use it quite a lot <laughs> yeah. and in fact it's interesting you say that about the stimulation of the brain because we know that actually being active which does include kind of just standing and even just you know going sidestepping from side to side that will actually stimulate the hippocampus area of the brain and that's involved in learning and memory um, and I actually, you know, believe that so passionately that now whenever I do a teaching session, regardless of what it, on, what it is on, but it normally is on physical activity, <laughs> I will get people to do a squat challenge yeah. or I'll get people to even just get up from their seat and just do some movement around the room because it makes such a difference. Even if it just gets people chatting and laughing a little bit, then actually they're more stimulated to learn again. I can personally vouch for that because uh, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago we were in Bristol Medical School, he got the entire year group of about 300 students all doing squats in this <laughs> massive hall um, and it definitely got people chatting and definitely got people laughing which has lots of other benefits as well so, certainly does yeah. certainly does <laughs> yeah I mean I suppose one thing that um, I'd like to come back to is kind of talking about the kind of physical activity levels because we talked about sedentary behaviour and there's no doubt that although we've got a problem with sitting we've got a problem with physical activity as well mm. so we know that as a nation about 19% of men and 26% of women are defined as being physically inactive mm. now terrifyingly that means that they do learn less than 30 minutes of activity a week so not a day a week which is quite profoundly yeah. low um, when we think of what just activity that could involve we know that kind of 33% of men and 45% of women are not active enough for good health and this is the stat that I really don't like and it's the one about children so mm. we know that actually 79% of boys and 84% of girls aged 5 to 15 are not hitting the physical activity guidelines wow. and that makes you terrified when you look at the future and you know the guidelines are slightly higher for children, but they should still be hitting them and yeah. they should still be getting a lot of play during their day. Mm. And that doesn't seem to be happening. And, you know, when we think of the ramifications of this, it's massive. The cost of the NHS is about 74, uh, sorry, 7.4 billion, but that's still big. Yeah. And some estimates are as high as 20 billion a year. 20 billion 20 a year. billion a year. Wow. Um, In the context of the entire budget, that's... Um, it's massive. 20%. Yeah. It is, yeah. So... And we've just got so much evidence leading to physical activity contributing to increased risk of death. Mm. Um, and there was one big study that was done in 2009, where well, the data was analysed in 2009, mm -hmm. and a more recent one 
um, in 2018. But the, the 2009 one looked at 55,000 people over a 15-year period. And what they did is they looked at contributing factors to death. And they looked at obesity, diabetes, hypertension. These are things that we all look for all the time in general practice and really kind of make an effort to manage. Mm. But what they found was the biggest contributing factor to death in that population was low cardiorespiratory fitness, which they actually measured on a treadmill test. Mm which is massive. I, mm. I don't know the fitness levels of any of my patients. <laughs> yeah. And you can guesstimate and you can work it out using screening tools, but it's still an estimate. Mm. Yeah, other things like hypertension, diabetes, so hypertension, high blood pressure, mm. um, we, we really screen for and check for and manage, yet fitness levels we, we don't pay any attention to. Yeah. And the more recent study that has been done in 2018, which is just as impressive, in this study they looked at 120,000 people over a 25-year period and what they did is they put people into different uh, kind of fitness levels. So they had elite, high, moderate and low. And they found that the elite level actually had an 80% reduced risk of death during that period, mm. which is similar to not smoking. So smoking compared to non-smoking, similar to being diabetic or not diabetic. That's massive when we think yeah. of how much of a risk those two things are to our general health. Absolutely, yeah. So those studies for me really kind of show you how important it is to be fit and maybe the question I ask is, should we be, as a NHS, as a group, be actually screening for that more? How do you know that you're about to approach burnout? And, and what do you do when you think that you are burning out? Um, I think it's, yeah, I mean, it's it's something that can, can affect you and you don't even realise it's coming. You know, like if you're having a really busy time at work or you're going through some stress, I use exercise as a tool. Like, I'm not someone who sits and meditates and, and, and can really slow my mind down, but when I, I, I use exercise as a tool and, and nutrition to, to make me feel good and productive and energised. So if things are getting difficult, I just, I'm, I'm quite good now at just sort of stepping back and putting my phone down for a few hours and, and thinking, like, what's the work? Let's just say I release a new product or something goes wrong or, you know something you think's not been a success I think well what's what's really going to happen like just mm. slow down and, and actually think about you're going to be fine everything's going to be fine and tomorrow you'll be fine you'll learn from it and I don't really let um, stress and anxiety get to me because it's crippling isn't it when mm. you feel it you feel like so much is on your plate at once it can be really debilitating so I'm, I'm good at kind of um, using exercise as a tool um, stepping away and just having a little breather and yeah, refocusing and also having a down down period so I, I don't work 365 days a year like I do have a month off here and there where I can just switch off chill out a little bit and then I, I re-energise myself to come back to work yeah I've got into the habit of not looking at my phone on Sundays for sure because I'm the first person to admit I'm addicted to my phone I'm addicted to social media what's your screen time a day do you know uh, I think mine's it's six like, hours it's six hours oh, that's, six like, hours. that's way too much <laughs> that's way do? more than me yeah mine's like two hours or so only two hours yeah two hours yeah, so, yeah but, but that's because I've I've actually reduced it and you know that's what amazing. that's the lowest I've ever I've really ever yeah. oh no, no mine's, mine's about two hours which I still think is a bit too high if you think two hours of your waking day if you're awake for over 12 hours it's like you know a sixth of your day no well I'm doing half I'm doing 50% of my day looking at a screen on my phone well, I suppose that that for a lot of people I mean that's your business isn't it uh, like and Instagram and social media is our business so that's sort of the reason why it would be so high but you know what there's people out there who do not have businesses on social media and they're just consuming the content yeah and six hours of consumption of any content is way too much and I and I know that's having an impact on, on particularly the younger generations because there's a lot of even for me I'm 
I'm the first person to admit I will scroll through my feed and I'm like oh this person's doing this and oh maybe I should be doing that or you know you compare yourself even at a subconscious level yeah yeah constantly of course does that happen to you yeah I mean well yeah I suppose it does I follow a lot of other people and you know I get inspired by certain people but yeah you are you're just before it was like it would just be you and your friends and that was all you concerned yourself now it's like there's all these people that you follow with certain lifestyles and yeah, you know, you think, what, how have they got that brand or how have they got that house and that car and how are they flying around, mm. you know, the, the world a bit. But you just have to just, honestly, it's so important just to focus on yourself and, you know, it doesn't mean they're happy just because they've got, you know, private jets and they're flying around with exactly. um, expensive yeah. cars and stuff. But, um, yeah, I'm, and that doesn't truly motivate me anyway. I, I'm much rather, you know, I'm much rather, I'm, I'm more about family and spending time with and experiences and travelling with family than buying things and material things. I'm not really like a collector of stuff. I think yeah. it's just a bit like, yeah, it doesn't really do much for me. There's two things I've got into uh, over the last couple of years. One is minimalism, so buying less and actually enjoying more of um, of, of products and, and things that actually give a lot of value. Um, and uh, like lack of materialism. I, I follow Gary Vee. I don't know, you've probably heard of Gary Yeah, v of course, before. yeah. Does He's, he do um, that? Yeah, he, I mean, he's pretty minimalist anyway. But you know, the kind of—I mean, he's very polarizing. Whether you either love him or you hate him, I—I I actually find his content really useful. Um, he talks a lot about you know falling in love with the game or falling in love with just you know your mission essentially. And I think what resonates really well with with yourself is you know we both have missions, and that's what gets us out of bed in the mornings. That's what drives us. If your goal is to have a bigger house or to live in a certain area or uh, you know to have a nicer car those things are pretty transient and they're not going to last and yeah. you actually want to fall in love with doing something that has a much grander purpose maybe and I, I try and encourage this for myself it's actually to make other people around you happier as a byproduct you will become happier yourself but if you focus on making other people healthy and happy then that's probably one of the best things you can try and aspire to yeah 100% I'm a ma- massive believer in that and connectivity and community and yeah like helping helping other people out and giving that's what I mean I, I feel like I do that with, with what I do I help people you know exercise and eat and cook and that makes them feel good so that is my true call and that is what I love doing and, and what I continue to do but yeah I mean we do we focus on the wrong things don't we there's yeah. just so much noise and confusion and advertising and marketing and we're just consuming everything but sometimes you've got to stop and just be grateful for what you've got and appreciate where you are and, you, and you're healthy and you know and and focus on helping other people yeah I'm a, I truly believe that's that's the key to true happiness I think definitely yeah. that was actually the second thing I was going to say first thing is minimalism the second thing is gratitude and you know being grateful for the smallest things in life oh, I love so, your gratitude thing you did the 100 days of gratitude yeah, it went yeah. on forever though do you still do it I still do it, still yeah. Doing it? What, like, well, last time I saw it like 300 days or something it's you, like 700 now wow yeah it's gonna over 700 yeah. my days it's really, really good. 700 I don't really know when I'm gonna stop I mean like I, I just I do it as a force of habit now I just, keep going mate I just do it yeah I mean, it's, it's fun and you know what the the thing that actually keeps me going not just doing the exercise because I would do that privately anyway it's other people see that I'm I'm grateful for even the smallest things on a daily basis and they're like that's really inspired me I'm going to start doing that and I've done it for like you know a couple of days now I feel great it's, it's just a nice positive thing to end your day on I find yeah so, definitely yeah. I'm, I'm definitely and I'd stop to um, to do that with um with Rosie and Nikki and just to say like you know thank you for thank you for your time and being here thanks for your you know the, the relationship we have and our friendship and yeah. the loyalty and the trust that we've got you know these things are so important because that's what relationships are formed on so yeah I'm doing that a lot more now. It's a really nice thing to actually say to someone, like, I really appreciate, you know, our friendship or the way you looked after me this year. 
And that is John and Joe rounding off the podcast. I'm really intrigued as to whether you found this podcast interesting, this essentially highly curated pod of me introducing all the different conversations that we've had over the last two years. Please tweet us at doctors underscore kitchen and on Instagram under the same handle. If you enjoyed this, we would love, love to know. As always, subscribe to thedoctorskitchen.com. We send recipes every single week, plus lots more content to help you live healthier, happier lives. And next year, January 2020, do not worry, we will be back with some incredible guests. I don't want to give too much away, but we're going to be talking about real body positivity. We're going to be talking about reversing aging and a whole bunch of other subjects. You're going to absolutely love it. I don't want to say too much, but... Continue to subscribe, have a fantastic new year and Christmas, whatever you're doing over January, stay positive, stay grateful, eat colours, eat lots of fibre, enjoy your food and enjoy the holiday and festive period. Take care.